Hello, everyone. Tim K. here to talk to you about our friends at the Mississippi Coffee Lady. Joy Rogers, a coffee connoisseur, is the wife of a Marine Corps officer who personally dedicates herself to giving back to veteran and caregiver causes through both of our projects. She's personally dedicated what I think is her best roast, a flavorful Ethiopian to the project. She's also played a big part in a nationwide care package effort organized by Gold Star wife Sherry Detheridge and friends for the 13 families of the fallen veterans who were recently killed in Afghanistan. To support the project, head over to MississippiCoffeeLady.com to pick up your bag of the Veterans Project roast today. Personally, guarantee it will be some of the best coffee you've ever tasted, and every single penny goes to the project. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to MississippiCoffeeLady.com. There are some of those amongst us that stand as incandescent reminders of hope and light. In an often cruel and dark world, they're exemplars of another way of life. Living hopefully, having been given a glimpse at the very summation of their own mortality. Kyle Carpenter has been to the brink and back at the hands of a ferocious enemy, in a place very few would ever choose to go voluntarily. You might expect that after such a hellish night on that rooftop in southern Afghanistan and the following three years of hospital bed purgatory, Carpenter would come out embroiled in bitterness a shadow of the once happy-go-lucky rural Mississippi youth. But expectation doesn't always meet reality, and in that place of exceptional behavior, we can all find growth. Kyle's message is brazenly universal. We all suffer. We all lose purpose. We all experience trauma. Don't give up. You're worth it. Coming from someone with the academic equivalent of a doctorate, In understanding physical, mental, and emotional torment, this message should be disseminated amongst the entire world. Kyle Carpenter has felt loss on the most substantial of all levels and returned from that hellscape with a renewed sense of unadulterated optimism. But to understand Carpenter's ideals and the development of his character arc, it becomes necessary to recognize his vision. How can one go from being barely recognizable without a pulse even, to the individual that now commands the attention of dignitaries, heads of state, and perennial powerhouse football teams. How is that even possible? How does a junior enlisted Marine Corps machine gunner become the inspiration for an entire generation of the downtrodden and brokenhearted? How does this message of pain, loss of purpose, death of a dream translate to those who've never donned the Eagle Globe and Anchor? Let's allow Kyle the space to explain his journey. Here he is with an education on overcoming the one and only Kyle Carpenter, Medal of Honor recipient. The Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay capturing the legacies of our warfighters, caregivers, and civilians who have stepped forward in defense of our patriotic principles in an effort to capture their stories and to never forget the staggering sacrifices of our nation's finest. This is the Veterans Project Podcast, where our legacies are the mission. Here's your host, Tim Kay. Welcome to the Veterans Project Podcast. My name is Tim Kay. I'll be your host as always with me today here. Kyle, we've been trying to get to this 
podcast for like three years now. <laughs> Thank you for your patience. <laughs> it's been it's it's been a while. I think we met first time at Shot Show. Yeah, years ago. Yeah. I don't even remember what year that was, but yeah. um, it's been a work in progress, man. But I'm I'm honored to be with you, and it's incredible what you're doing. So thanks for uh, being willing to share my story. Man, of course, it's an honor. Uh, you know, I this is obviously, ladies and gentlemen, this is Kyle Carpenter, Medal of Honor recipient, uh, just an incredible guy. You know, Kyle, I, I think one of the things about you that I most admire is that you are who I thought you were. Which is really cool because, of course, you know, when you, you're representing something that's massive, something that's bigger than yourself, uh, being a part of that society. And then when I met you the first time, I was just like, oh, I love that guy. This guy doesn't even I, know me. I slipped him a 20 to say that <laughs> before this started. So not that cool, but. I didn't um, know a 20 was enough. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. But yeah, thank you. That's, uh, that's an incredible compliment. Um, that you are, uh, you know, he thought I was, mm-hmm. um, that's, I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. And, um, yeah, it's just an honor to be here with you, Kyle, you know, as we do with every project and podcast, we kind of go down the track and talk about a lot about your early life and kind of what led your path in the Marine Corps. I know you've probably talked about it a million times, but here's a million and one. So <laughs> we're going to have you, uh, talk a little bit about where you came from and if you can kind of talk about how you tracked into the Marine Corps. Yeah, of course. So, um, I was born, raised and grew up in the southeast part of the country. I was born in Mississippi, but after many moves and many states, I wound up with my family about 13 years ago in South Carolina, which is uh, where we call home. I love South Carolina. Uh, When we moved at the time, it was uh, a very difficult move for me later on in high school. Uh, But uh, I say that and kind of emphasize the moving aspect of my childhood because now looking back, uh, you know, moves always turned out to be great. Mm. And uh, I always, you know, with time and sometimes on the first day met incredible people, people that still, even if I only live somewhere two or three years now, many, many years later are still some of my best friends. Um, but, uh, so they always turned out, you know, to be a good thing for me, but at the time, many of them were difficult, you know, always, at least every few years being that new kid on the first day. But now looking back, I'm so thankful and grateful, uh, that I was not only that I moved around, but I was challenged And I was always kind of facing unknowns with Mm. those moves, which uh, now looking back, I'm thankful for because that kind of gave me a foundation to be able to uh, confidently join the Marine Corps Uh, or really just you could just say military instead of Marine Corps because, you know, a life of service is all about the unknown. Mm. You know, you don't know um, how bad you're going to get destroyed in PT the next morning. <laughs> you don't know when your next deployment is, where you're going. You don't know if you're going to make it through that deployment, if you're ever going to see your family again. 
So again, you know, a life of service is a life of the unknown and going confidently into that and embracing that unknown. And so, um, you know, I, I, I feel like I've always kind of searched for a silver lining growing up through the military, um, but that became much more after getting injured. But uh, yeah, you know, the, the silver lining is... Um, that I just, uh, I, I did, I just feel like I got that foundation to, to, uh, to join and to, um, know that no matter what came my way, you know, uh, after knowing what it feels like to be the, the new kid on the first day of school, uh, you know, if you can get through that feeling and I uh, keep putting one foot in front of the other, you can pretty much do anything. Mm, I love that. And, you know, you make an interesting point too, Kyle, because, you know, you're, you're relating something to our audience, which everyone kind of gets and understands. You're not talking about being wounded. That, that was one transition, right? You're talking about an earlier moment in your life where you experienced transition. Right. And, you know, going to a new school, moving to a new town, right? Leaving your job. Everybody can associate with that. But you're, what you're saying is that aspect of transition can be scary too, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, transition is transition. Yeah. And uh, to leave comfort is to leave comfort. Um, and like most things in life, to not have either the most perfect plan or to not know exactly what you're getting into or if you are even making the right move, just to have those feelings, um, you know, can relate to everyone. And uh, I don't want to jump ahead, but that's what I've realized about my journey is that, you know, struggle is struggle, transition is transition, heartache is heartache, uh, mental suffering is mental suffering, and it doesn't matter how you got to that point or where you where you came from or what led to that. It's just, uh, it's just, um, you know, we're all in this together. Mm, yeah. I love that message. Um, you know, as we were walking through South end today, I'll take people on the photographic journey. <laughs> Close your eyes. Close your eyes right now. <laughs> um, as a, as we were walking through South end, you know, we saw that chalkboard and, you know, you, you wrote those powerful words, very profound in their simplicity, but impact the world. Did you know growing up, did you have a feeling that you were going to do something that would impact the world in, in, in the way that you are now? Did you have that feeling growing? Because some people talk about feeling almost like a sense of destiny or they were going to do something greater than themselves. Did you Did you feel that growing up? Man, I've got chills right now. And uh, the first thing I'll say is, uh, I thought I had heard it all and every question out there, uh, but I've never, uh, no one's ever had that insight or thought about that. And I've never talked about this because what you just said and described and asked me is something that is difficult to put into words, but I have always felt something mm. that I was um, 
again, how do you put this? Meant for something greater than myself. And, um, you know, kind of in a crazy way, uh, I still feel that. You know, I uh, even being a Medal of Honor recipient and serving and um, doing the things that I have, um, and, and maybe that's just, you know, me being a little too ambitious all the time or, um, you know, more hoping than being realistic. But uh, I have always felt that um, there was just something more out there. And most of my journey, I've never known what that was until it happened. Mm. Um, but... Uh, you know, with that, I realized that it's not enough just to think about something or yeah. to feel something or to believe in something. You know, I, um, you know, looking back, I realized that all of those, you know, the most painful moments, all of those, you know, new kid on the first day type feelings, all of the days and years in the hospital, all of the goals that I set for myself that I didn't know physically or mentally if I would ever be able to accomplish um, for the rest of my life after waking up in the state that I did. You know, all of those moments of extreme adversity, going through them, but then after the fact, dissecting them and thinking about them and learning from them, you know, that is the only reason and, and, and the most difficult times are what has led me to those moments that I feel destined for. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it was, um, you know, uh, uh, a lot of, a lot of hoping, but also knowing that if I just stay true to myself, keep taking those small steps, and just believe, almost, you know, wanting to manifest crossing the finish line of the marathon or, you know, becoming a successful speaker or whatever it is, you know, you, you have to think about it. That's one. You have to believe in it. Then you have to believe in yourself and you have to stay so true to yourself that, you know, you um, stay so true to yourself that that when you look in the mirror that you know you can do it, mm -hmm. that you trust the process enough to know that you can make it happen. And that, you know, a, a, and another important thing is just staying patient. Mm. You know, not not when you don't have a plan, when you don't know that next step to take, when you don't know if you're making the best decision, just to stay patient, stay true to yourself, and and keep taking those small steps forward. Yeah, and patience was a large part of your journey. Uh, you know, more so than a lot of people. Uh, so I want to go back a little bit. Yeah. So you you take the path to join the Marines. What do you remember about your mom and dad and, and, and growing up uh, in South Carolina and how they kind of raised you? How did, how did that, 
How how was that? And what about that prepared you for the Marine Corps? Oh, well, my parents are in just truly incredible. Yeah. And uh, all of my extended family and just, you know, they loved me unconditionally, one. Uh, they were, you know, whether it was as a Marine or on the football field in high school, they've always been my biggest fans. And so uh, just strictly speaking about them and my family, you know, they, everything from, you know, having hot meal on the table every night to that lo- unconditional love, you know, they gave me a foundation to go forward into any situation mm-hmm. and, and, you know, believe that I could do it, but also feel that no matter what happened, I would still be loved and supported. So I think that's one of the most important things. And then, you know, again, the moving around played a, a big part. When I was on the last move, the one to South Carolina, when I didn't know anyone, I was kind of down and out mentally and emotionally. I mean, now, you know, after getting hit with a hand grenade and spending three years in the hospital, <laughs> I realized that that moment, you know, wasn't the end all be all. Yeah. But to have earned a starting spot on the football team that I worked so hard for being as small as I am at my high school in Tennessee, you know, two years, every day, never missing a workout, doing every single thing that I could to earn that starting spot. To have that starting spot, you know, put on the roster on the locker room door, and then two weeks later to move and to start all over again halfway through high school, you know, uh, that was devastating. So um, when I moved to South Carolina, this – I don't even remember the the strange connection that led to this, but I found out about uh, this youth group from this local church going on a mission trip for a week down to the Dominican Republic. And so I thought, you know, at this point, you know, why not? And so I went, and um, that trip not only taught me perspective about you are not your circumstances and the fact that the people I hung out with all week, they were the happiest people I've ever met Mm. and they lived at the bottom of a landfill and to give them a soccer ball, you might as well have been handing them a hundred dollar bill. So not only that, but more importantly, and in the bigger picture, that trip showed me that everywhere in the world is not like, America is not like how I grew up. Not everyone has the the safety and freedom and um, the luxuries that I had and I was so fortunate enough to have. And so, you know, along with, you know, that supplementing that foundation that I already had, thankfully, uh, and opening my eyes to the world, all of those things played into my journey of not just wanting to serve, but wanting to serve something, a purpose, and commit my myself and my life, if it was for four years or 30 years, to something bigger than myself or any one individual. And so, you know, I made uh, the decision to join. I joined the Marine Corps specifically um, because... You know, where on the street was, I had heard it was the hardest, <laughs> uh, you know, but, but 
Um, and every Marine will make that claim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, that's not been verified. That's not been verified. <laughs> but, but beyond that, with knowing that how difficult it was going to be, you know, I knew how many sprints I could run on the football field. I knew how much weight I could lift. I knew that I could make it through uncomfortable situations. I knew all of these things. And I also knew that I didn't, you know, I just felt like I didn't fully know myself, though. And I had never been pushed to the point of of uncertainty. You know, I had never just, I had never been pushed so far that I had to truly dig and look deep down inside to know who I really was and who I could become. And so I wanted, you know, that. I wanted the Marine Corps. I wanted anything that would push me to the next level of myself. And so, uh, but when I joined, you know, it's it's an entirely different story of how um, hard it was on my parents. Mm. Devastatingly hard. Really? So your mom and dad were not pumped about you joining not only pumped but i mean it was uh you know weeks and months of not just talking about hey are you sure you want to do this but hey is it just that you want to get out and get away and go explore the world like you know we'll send you on any trip you want pick it wherever you want to go for how long you know we'll fund it and and you just take off for as long as you need to kind of get this bug out of your system, right? Yeah. And it, of course, it wasn't that. So after many conversations, I sat them down and I said, listen, you know, this is what I truly not only want to do, but I believe it is the path for my life. Mm. And I feel called to do this. And uh, not that through those weeks and months leading up to that conversation did they not love and support me. It was just, you know, as, as parents out there can imagine, your oldest son, one of three sons, joining the Marine Corps in a time of two wars, you know, going into infantry at that, and um, not having any knowledge or family member or any knowledge of service and what the military really was about, what you would do while you're in the military besides just deploy or go to combat. Um, so we were all very ignorant about what a life of service and joining the military meant. Uh, my mom's dad, who died when I was very young, was in the Navy. But other than that, uh, we just didn't know. And again, that uncertainty, you know, sometimes uh, breeds fear. And in that situation, rightfully so. So it was many talks and a process. And uh, I went through all of that because I wanted their blessing. You know, I didn't need it. I didn't have to have it, but I wanted it. And so when I felt like they got to a point that was, okay, you know, they've kind of, come to terms with what I'm telling them and as hard as it is we're still just going to look forward and kind of go confidently forward together uh you know at that point uh, I made the move and I uh, went to boot camp in March of 2009 mm. I was at Paris Island yes mm. so your your parents finally gave you that blessing right? they did yeah was that 
did you feel that, or, or did you ever feel in your discussions with your parents that they were just scared? They were just frightened about the Marine Corps and what that history looked like? Because you said they didn't really understand the, they didn't really understand the service aspect so much. And I didn't either. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. obviously never having done that before, you don't know what you don't know. And so, you know, I had researched and looked up everything I could. Uh, and I knew of uh, just had only met, you know, one or two Marines growing up. Um, and one of them really impacted me. And just the way he carried himself, the way he, uh, you know, handled the people working under him, some of the things he did that, were not really in the job description, but he did them anyway to get down on the level with his lowest worker and to mm. be a part of that team and just things that I'd never really seen before. Um, and so, um, but yeah, other than that, you know, we didn't know. And so to not know and also be scared of whatever was going to come, yeah. knowing that most likely, even though we don't really truly know what I'm getting into, we're still in a time of two conflicts. Yeah. And so uh, to be potentially, you know, going down range and not really even have that military feel in your family at least, um, you know, because it would probably have been so much easier if I had, you know, a brother or an uncle or whoever that had been there and done that and that could have said, hey, listen, you know, he's going to be taken care of. The, the medics or corpsmen that are working on him, you know, if anything ever happens, he'll be well taken care of. Yeah. You know, this many survive off the battlefield in modern modern wars. You know, we have so much better tools, all these things. Or just to say, uh, you know, hey, he'll be able to talk to you when he deploys. Uh, and just simple things that would have been a little bit of a comfort. Uh, but we just, you know, we didn't know. And so I, I don't fault them at all. You know, for being scared, I probably should have been a little scared. <laughs> but, um, you know, they, uh, w but when we had that talk, it was from that moment on, hey, listen, we're here for you. We'll be here waiting for you. We love and support you. And uh, we're, we're going to do that through your, your journey. That's a commendable strength, too. Yeah. To come in, you know, behind their son, even though they don't, they're not, they're not psyched. <laughs> You know, uh, yeah, they're not stoked about it. Uh, completely opposite. Yeah, but yeah. you you feel this calling on your life. You feel that it is your destiny to be a Marine. When you get to Paris Island, was that was that? Did you feel more of that when you got there, or did you feel like, oh, uh, what did I get myself? It into? was a nice fifty-fifty balance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And so uh, I think everyone, if you don't have the, uh, is this real, what is happening right now, what did I do type yeah. moments, at least for the first few hours or days, um, then, I mean, either more power to you or uh, you were not totally present. <laughs> because when that just monster of a human being ripped the door open on that van, that drill instructor... And told us to get out of the van and stand on the yellow footprints. Um, dude, I thought the door, I thought he ripped the van door off. <laughs> and so, uh, and so, uh, you know, from that point though, um, as surreal and, and kind of, um, I don't know if scary is the word, but 
uh, as surreal and scary as it was, it was so, I was like instantly getting what I set out to do and what I wanted. Yeah. Like scared. I don't know what's about to come next. I don't know if I'm even going to make it through the day if before this guy kills me, you know, like <laughs> all these things. But it was just uh, invigorating that I was there. I was doing it. And, you know, it's the people think like, oh, you know, all these service, all these people serving in the military, they did it for money or they did it for fill in the blank reasons. I mean, there's a hundred of them out there. Um, but it is very difficult to pass the rigorous standards, not only, um, physically, but mentally, you know, that when you sign up, you know, if you've, you know, uh, done drugs, if you've got arrested, like you have to get waivers, you have to go through a stringent process to be, to even be able to go to Paris Island and try to become a Marine. And that's for all branches, you know, joining the military. There's different standards across the board mm -hmm. for what branches prefer. But ultimately, you don't just go and join and, oh, okay, here you go, like you're leaving next week. You know, some, some people wait around in the delayed entry program, which for any of you not familiar, you go, you join, you sign on the dotted line, you technically kind of join the military, but you're in this delayed entry program until you get your ship date for boot camp. Mm -hmm. I've talked to Marines that were in the delayed entry program for a year and a half, almost two years. Like, wow. just can't wait to try to earn that title. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not, there. there's always going to be the the few in every group that's in it for the wrong reason. Yeah. But, but you know, I, it was, I was finally there. And, um, I was delayed entry by seven months. Yeah, exactly. Know, way, See, that's yeah. amazing. Oh, you had seven months to think about it, psych yourself out, and maybe not do it, and you still did it anyway. So that's, you know, that's incredible. And I did think about not doing it. <laughs> It's okay. We'll edit that it two, out. It was yeah. 2005. <laughs> yeah. I was like, man, there are way too many guys getting killed or wounded over there. Like, this is serious. Like, yeah. 17 years old. I'm a boy. You exactly. Know? Like, but see, that is how serious it is. Yeah. You know, for anyone listening, I mean, it's crazy to have those concerns at 17. Yeah. Like, oh, man. Like, am I even going to make it through my four year enlistment? Yeah. But, you know, I was there. I stood on those yellow footprints and I was beginning my journey. Mm hmm. And so, um, so, you know, uh, a little scared, like, what did I do? But also to be there and, and to, to be present in that moment where so many Marines and recruits have stood before, uh, was just, it was just surreal and, and beautiful. And I was just, I was just super pumped to be there and, and whatever came my way, I was just hungry to get through it or let it destroy me, but still keep moving on. You know, there was just no stopping me, yeah. at least in my head. That's amazing. Any funny Kyle at boot camp stories that you can legally tell? <laughs> or did you have a pretty besides me wetting my pants every day? <laughs> no? No, nah, I'm kidding everyone. Um, People are like, Kyle Carpenter wet his pants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh it's cool to pee your pants. <laughs> had to get at least one Billy Madison uh, reference. Yeah, in. had to. Yeah. <laughs> um, funny stuff happens every day. Mm -hmm. The thing is, you don't remember too many of them because, I mean, you 
you have to make yourself not laugh. Yeah. I mean, every smile is an hour of pain. I know. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, this is not funny, but I will say that, uh, and this is, you know, this was a, a very impactful lesson for me. Okay. So I had this drill instructor, and in Marine Corps boot camp, you have uh, a senior drill instructor who's been there, done that, about to be done with his tour on the drill field. And then you have three, depending on how big the platoon is, which in boot camp, it's uh, depending on the time of the year, roughly 40 to 70 recruits. So, but you have at least three, what, and this is the actual title of them. Mm -hmm. They have three kill hats under the senior drill instructor. Mm. And Sounds like a very Marine Corps title for a job. <laughs> yeah, you know, why not? Go ahead. Yeah, and so uh, they're always, whatever uniform, always soaked in sweat because their only job is to run around completely, and I like YouTube videos for anyone listening, completely lose their minds every second of every day. Mm-hmm. And you don't realize how incredible it is that they do this, to have that intensity for over three months training 60 recruits that some of them think, you know, oh, well, I'm better in this process. Some of them, uh, you know, uh, are cocky in different ways. Some of them don't, you know, can't get drill movements right. You know, some are not super athletic, so they fall behind on hikes. And these drill instructors are running from the front to the back of the platoon, screaming. I mean, imagine screaming as loud and as crazy as you can for 15 hours a day, every day for over three months. Then you get done, you get a two-week break, and then you go back on another cycle and do another over three months. And all you do for over three years is take a... nasty civilian as they would say (laughs) off the street and transform them into a united states marine like that's incredible yeah and so one of my kill hats uh his name is and i I, i'm even hesitant to not address his rank and just call him his first name but we're (laughs) we're cool we're friends now he came to my medal of honor ceremony uh i actually got a picture of him i made him and i brought two drill instructors that that really that really did a lot for me that I felt at the time, but even more tenfold now, I realized what they did for me. Um, and so, uh, I got a picture of them at the Marine Corps Museum in DC, destroying me like I was a recruit like, <laughs> w- with the medal. And so, they're like, No, no, we can't do that, we can't do that. But, uh, no, so, um, we're supposed we're, to salute you, <laughs> yeah. So, we're friends now, but, um, you know, at the time, uh, Luke Billingsley, Sergeant Billingsley, okay. Uh, it was like, and you know, all the drill instructors, they all get these one or two recruits that are like, you know, their favorite, their favorite victims. Oh boy. And you so, don't want to be that guy. No. Yeah. And so, um, and also it's important to note that, um, I, uh, humbly was picked as a squad leader. Mm. So say not, it's not the top three or four in the platoon. It's more, uh, not who can run the best, not who does the most pull-ups or push-ups. It's more who they think um, could uh, gracefully um, go through 
you know, everything that they were going to throw your way because you're not only going through what you have to, but if anyone in your squad messes up throughout the entire day and the whole three months of boot camp, you have to get punished with them exactly what they go through. Um, and so uh, not just being a recruit there and under his, you know, charge, but also being a squad leader, like every day it was his mission to just completely destroy me. <laughs> Sounds and, great. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, uh, you know, went through over three months of this and just always writing me about everything, even when I didn't do anything wrong, like, you know, asking to make a head call or go to the bathroom, like, nope, go sit down, you know, come back when you can scream louder or whatever it is. And so, uh, I graduate graduation day. And, uh, after you graduate, your parents can come into the squad bay and see where you slept and where you got destroyed for the past three months. And, uh, I'm sitting there with my parents and he comes over still looking mad as hell. <laughs> like, dude, I graduated. <laughs> Please <done>. leave <laughs> me alone. He's going to follow you back home. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, Carpenter, come over here. Takes me back behind the bunk, the, behind the steel bunk beds that line the wall. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, not getting too specific, he essentially told me that you know, he was proud of me and he was the way he was on me because, you know, he not only knew I could handle it, but he saw potential in me. Mm. He takes his campaign cover off, what unofficially is known as like the Smokey Bear cover, mm -hmm. takes his drill instructor campaign cover off that for the past three months, if he took it off, it just meant things were about to get so terrible for everyone. <laughs> yeah. But he takes it off and he unscrews his Eagle Globe and anchor out of it and hands it to me. Oh my gosh. And wow. You know, wishes me luck in in, you know, a very profound and beautiful way uh on the rest of my journey. Wow. And that he hoped, you know, our paths will cross again one day. And so I, I just tell that story because um you just, you never know whether it's a person or the world or life. You never know who or what circumstances, good, bad, ugly, indifferent, are shaping you um, and, and making you better uh, that you can't really see at the time quite yet because you're going through the storm. Mm. I love that, man. I um, have a similar story uh, kind of after at, at graduation. So when we got done, um, our senior drill instructor or drill sergeant, as we call him in the Army, Drill Sergeant Span, who's just my, my favorite drill sergeant. If you can have a favorite, like... <laughs> 
He was the. I think he was the least angry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He would. He would have like in our last week or so. He would like have a uh, almost like a story time, like every couple days. You know, he'd I mean, smoke you obviously throughout the whole day. You know, you're in the yeah. last phase, so you had a little more respect. Yeah. But not exactly. still. Still, you're you know you're a maggot. Yeah. And uh, he he would tell us stories just like about his time in the army, and it would kind of get us ready for our units. It was really actually very valuable time. Um, I remember I got called in and I was, uh, you know, I just turned 18, like 14 days before I graduated and, uh, second, second youngest guy in the entire company of like 225 guys. And I, I got called in and I remember I was like, you know, I'm graduated, I'm done. My grandpa's there. He's a chief master sergeant. He's got his dress uniform on. That's um, awesome. And my grandpa had graduated from there 60 years before from Fort Knox, the same basic training. So we were where we did our mount training, like our, you know, combat, like kicking down doors and all that. Yeah. Um, Iraqi town, the Iraqi town was in his old barracks. What? At Knox. Yeah. So we were running through those, like kicking down doors in the same place my grandpa had slept. Crazy. Anyways, my grandpa came, my grandpa and grandma came. I'll never forget this day. And uh, and uh, the, my drill sergeant said, Chief Chief Master Sergeant, can I have a word with uh, your grandson for a second? And, you know, my grandpa's like, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah have at him. Have yeah. at him. <laughs> <laughs> my grandpa, I don't know. I don't know if my grandpa knew this was about to happen. But um, he said, uh, he said, he said, uh, come here. And then he said, I saw you outside and uh in your cover and i saw your cover was sitting uh, up high on your head you know we had the brace he goes now let me ask you i want you to look in a mirror i want you to put your cover on right now i put it on he's like well i stood in front of the mirror and he's like is that is that shape right is that the standard he said you think now because you're done with basic training you think you're done being at that level. You think that you can just be back on the block now? He's like, you're about to go to combat. The standard goes higher. I don't ever want you to see where that cover. I'll smoke you all day. And he proceeds to smoke me for like 20 minutes. In my dress uniform. <laughs> wow. I thought I was off. I mean, he's the coolest show sergeant. I think I'm going to have the coolest talk with this guy. It's like, oh, man, we're finally here. You know, what's up, sergeant? You know, we're We're equals, man. We're both in the army. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, you know, I'm about to have a talk with this drill. And and, and what that lesson taught me is you don't ever sacrifice the standard because sacrificing the standard can get someone killed. It was just a little detail thing he was still paying attention to, even then. He said, you're getting relaxed now. I just beat your, I just beat your brains in for the last nine, ten weeks, and now you're already losing it again? No, that's not the way this works. So my story, way less pleasant than yours. <laughs> but another important lesson very early on in my career, when I thought I could relax, it wasn't the time to relax. And Absolutely. just because I could relax doesn't mean that I'd lose a professionalism. Absolutely. It was just a small thing, you know? Great lesson. So people are not here for my story times, but I thought that was kind of a cool, yeah. uh, you know, segue into that. But I, I was just thinking about that as you were talking. I thought, man, that was really impactful in my entire career. And there was not a moment after that where I didn't think about my uniform. 
And even being overseas sometimes, you know, when I'm tired and I'm just not feeling it, you know, I just thought, you know, it's that one little detail for getting around, whatever, that could get somebody hurt or killed. Yeah. And so, you know, losing that discipline, it can it can destroy a whole mission, you know? So just a small thing, but I, I thought that was a very interesting platform on my career. Yeah, man. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, absolutely. So you get done with that. You go to SOI, right? SOI, School of Infantry. Yeah, and where was that at? What was the camp? Camp Geiger. Geiger, that's right. I was almost going to say that. You'd be proud of me. Army guy knows the Marine camps. Nice, man. <laughs> so did, did you enjoy SOI? And I know it's kind of more getting your brains bashed in, right? You're still getting beat up. Uh, Yeah, but that kind of transitioned from the yelling kind of drill instructor uh, type feel to... Uh, just as difficult, but in a, you know, now you've not learned everything by far, but you've learned enough to know how to be a Marine. You know the basics, whether it's uniform, a weapon, uh, terminology. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and above all, you had earned the title Marine. Mm -hmm. But then when you went to SOI, they might not have been screaming at you, but all week, every single week you're there for the two and a half months, you are training, but more than that, you are learning how to operate uh, and survive in a combat environment. So uh, it, it the difficulty shifted uh, in in a different way, but, you know, to go out on a training op to dig a hole, a fighting hole, a foxhole in the ground, and rain, shine, 20 degrees or 100 degrees, you know, to live out there, sleep in that hole all day, every day, to be in the elements, to wake up in the mornings and scrape, you know, ice off your sleeping bag so you mm -hmm. can unzip it and get out. You know, that is mentally difficult. Yeah. And you have to, even if you're not training, just to sit there in the elements, to sit on watch or lookout or what we call post from the midnight to 4 a.m. shift when no one else is up, you have bugs crawling all over you, probably getting rained on or whatever else, and you have to sit there and knowing you're in the woods of North Carolina, but stay vigilant in case not not in case but like you know uh your instructors or your team leaders you know will come by ask you questions check on you make sure you're not only awake but you're alert and um again simulating somewhat of a combat environment um but yeah the difficulty just went for me and I think most uh to just um learning how to be miserable mm. and learn how to be cold, wet and hungry and continue on with the mission. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I learned a lot, but I more learned again, like how to be uncomfortable and not really care. Mm -hmm. And so that, uh, in a much different way, um, than boot camp, but that played into, you know, deployments to come and my time in Afghanistan and, you know, being okay with not 
having a shower for seven months. And luckily, a couple months into our deployment, the Marine Corps, um, their heart softened a little bit. And they realized they cared about us, and they sent us cots to sleep on. Wow. I know. Dude, what? Yeah, I couldn't believe it. The Hilton? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I was about to ask why you turned down my request to go camping. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I called you up, Kyle, and you wouldn't answer. Yeah. <laughs> Kyle, don't you want to go camping again, bro? <laughs> no, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Too many of those experiences. Right. The cots, bro. Yeah. So what we, were they thinking? We got those, but until that point, I mean, we were just sleeping on the ground. Jeez. And every single day, sun up to sundown was um, a, just a nonstop and vicious fight for survival. Home mm. in Providence, right? Helmand Province, yeah, Marja. Marja. 2010. Jeez. And for those of you that don't understand the climate, we've had guys on, uh, you know, from uh, 3-5, You were with? 2-9. 2-9. We've had guys on from some of the more difficult parts of the war in Helmand Province, um, and so, but for those of you that don't remember, this is a very pivotal time in Afghanistan and violent, violent. Yes. And Marja is kind of the key centerpiece of that Helmand province. Exactly. Uh, the fight to win it back. When did that occur? The Battle of Marja. So the so Battle of Marja. That before or during? So we, okay. So, uh, Three six, they deployed first, and okay. they did the initial invasion and push. Okay, and I believe, um, I think I'm right, but I believe it was called Operation Mosterak. Mm-hmm. And so they kicked it off, and and uh, at the end of their seven month deployment, two nine relieved them. Mm. So. Uh, you know, it was just as bad, if not a little worse than, um, you know, not, not when they got there, but in seven months, things don't just get better and calm down. Yeah. So they were still on the up and up when we got there. And so, uh, I love what you're saying right now, man, not to interrupt, but you're explaining the dynamic of an insurgency and that's so good because the, the initial push is not always the most violent. And in fact, sometimes it's one of the least violent parts. I think you expect you're going to see a lot of resistance incoming. And sometimes, and often what the Taliban would do, correct me if I'm wrong, I did Iraq, not Afghanistan, but they would do kind of the same thing in Iraq where they would they would bug out from an area and just let the, let the incoming units take it with very little resistance. Yeah. And then in the coming months, really fight back. And so when you got there... You know, seven months later or whatever it was, it's probably getting, it's probably had been hot for a little bit, but it was getting really hot, right? Yeah. And I mean, uh, not to take anything away from 3-6. Of course. Because yeah. the guy that slept on the bunk above me or beside me in SOI, you know, 18 years old, his name's Eric Courier. 18 years old, when we got done with SOI, all the Marines in my SOI class either went to 2-9 or 3-6. Okay. So he goes to 3-6, and uh, when he got dropped to 3-6, they were already on pre-deployment leave. Oh. So he got a few days to go home 
came back, deployed with 3-6, and he was their first KIA, killed Jeez. by a sniper. But what you're saying is absolutely still true, though, that the intensity just, uh, you know, kept building. So when we got there, you know, the enemy had kind of, uh, like you said, from a distance after maybe stepping back a little bit, saw how we operated, right? saw the bases or positions that we were holding, saw how far they could push, you know, the rules of engagement to try to maximize casualties, but minimize the retaliation against them. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, but, you know, regardless, it was an extremely violent and kinetic deployment. Mm -hmm. Now, 3-5, which 2-9, my unit 2-9 and 3-5, like when I got to Walter Reed, we occupied the entire floor. Like Jeez. they always put your units on your hospital door. And it was like 2-9, 3-5, dark horse, 2-9, so on and so forth. So, but I say that to say like 3-5, they were insane. Right. And they had IEDs every couple feet. Mm. Thousands of IEDs. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't escape them. I cannot imagine that. Yeah. I mean, I was already terrified every single step to think, oh, man, is this is this it? Is this my last one? But I say that to say... My boy, Josue, uh, th uh, Josue Barone, uh, was about three weeks in, I believe, uh, and lost his leg in his eye, um, stepping on, you know, he was in 3-5. Yeah. He stepped yeah. on the landmine. But, yeah, and so that... It's just drastically different because three five right down the road, all IEDs, and we were firefights mm. all day, every day, hours at a time. Jeez. And so, uh, but yeah, that was a deployment. No showers, constant fighting, and um, yeah, extremely, extremely kinetic. What's what's the psychology of that for a young Marine who's getting into their first firefight? And you know, yeah, I know you had built up that kind of instinct level right where it's just part of what you do right and getting a gunfight but no matter what it's still the feeling of that in the first time you never anticipate or mm -hmm. prepare for yeah yeah and even in the moment getting shot at it's so surreal that it's uh you know almost unfathomable you mm -hmm. know all these rounds are are um impacting around me or on my very first uh, patrol, very first firefight, got hit with a ricochet in my lower back, and I thought, you know, that was it right off the bat. Jeez. You know, that I'm out of the fight, I'm going home, whatever. Um, and so, uh, but, um, yeah, it was just so surreal, it didn't seem real. But that didn't mean that, you know, I didn't immediately react, and we didn't go you know, into the movement of reacting, knowing what to do, knowing how to handle the situation. It's just kind of like, okay, as crazy and surreal as this is, you know, I still don't want to get shot. Yeah, yeah. So let's make moves. Um, but it's just something that whether you're an 18 year old first deployment, first firefight Marine, or you've been in 20 years and it's your ninth deployment. Um, it's, it's so real, it's so intense, but at the same time, you'll never, ever be able to know or anticipate 
not only what it's going to be like, or, but also how you're going to react. Yeah. Let me ask you this. You know, your first patrol, right? And you get hit like that. Is there a thought process like, how am I going to make it through the rest of the deployment if that already happened? <laughs> like, uh, like, like early on. Man, what a great start to this seven months. <laughs> it's been 14 hours. <laughs> and then when we got inserted in on the on the first day technically of our deployment, uh, it took 10 days roughly to go from Cherry Point, North Carolina to the little mud hut compound where we were going to be living and operating for that whole deployment. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're getting helicoptered in because there's not really any roads or any infrastructure that could support any vehicles. Yeah. Uh, there was Marines that had already been killed and where the side of a canal or a bank would collapse, you know, the, the seven ton or the armored vehicle, probably the same unfortunate deal in Iraq, you know, you, cave off into this sometimes three foot sometimes 20 foot deep canal and you're in a an up armored vehicle strapped in in a seat belt and uh all your gear and so to prevent that you know the standard operating procedure came at least in margin where we were uh we were so far out that you know it was only foot patrols for our entire deployment mm. and so um and so, but we were getting helicopter inserted in, and um, I was getting handed, I was a saw gunner, I was getting handed belts of ammo, and uh, the crew chief, it's so loud in the helicopter, and I know you know this, I'm just, any for anyone listening. Yeah, yeah, no, it's I'm so glad you're explaining it. It's yeah. so loud in the helicopter um, that this crew chief, you know, leans over, hands me a be belt of ammo, maybe a 200-round drum. And he, he leans over, he's like, we're going to take contact as we're landing. I'm like, man, dude, at least let us get on the ground. Like, get, give us a, a fair chance. <laughs> and so uh, that was, you know, the first extremely, really the second surreal moment. Because up until he interrupted my thoughts about, you know, what he told me and giving me the ammo. You know, before that, I was almost, I was focused but I was also in a daze and I, I, you know, I had the opportunity to be cause I was just riding in the helicopter, but it was a weird mix of focus and being in a daze because, you know, I, I again, everything's so surreal. Like, um, 18, 19, I'm being inserted into the worst combat zone on earth. <laughs> like, obviously I've never done this, but while we were, while we were in that helicopter and before I got the ammo, I was looking out the back. And, you know, they keep the back open for, for quick exfil. The door gunner's back there. And I'm looking out, and we're flying low and fast, so I can see every field. I can see every farmer, every canal, every tree line, every road, every village. And I couldn't help but to think, you know, after 10 days before giving my mom a hug for potentially the last time and wondering as we rode on the bus to the airport, like, man, I wonder which one of these guys are not going to be around me for the ride home. So that, on top of 10 days later, getting inserted by helicopter, I was looking out the back, and I just thought, man, am I going to step on an IED on that road? 
Am I going to bleed out in that field? Mm. Am I going to get shot and die in that tree line? And it wasn't like scared. It was just so real trying to process, you know, what I'm about to go into. Yeah. And so from the, from that moment on the helicopter until, you know, I got hit roughly four months later, um, you know, it was just, it was just very, very real. But at the same time, dude, I mean, you're, you're getting shot at and you know the risk, you know what's happening. You can hear the rounds. You can hear like the whisper of the rounds because that's when they get real close. Everyone thinks it's the crack of the rifle or, you know, no, it's like, you know, when it just whispers to you. Mm. And so even though that's happening, there's only, you can only process it. 90 percent it's just so real and intense yeah wow so uh, what were you and i love what you said about that whisper because everybody does think about the crack right (laughs) in the movie like Like, maybe i wish i'd heard that because then they were not accurate but no when they're whispering to you that's that's when it's real some trouble yeah did, and uh, now, had you taken casualties in those four months, you know, leading, you know? Many. You, many? Yeah, many. What, what's the what's the feeling of that when you took your first? So we had taken a few. Um, some I had heard over the radio. Some I had seen, and it was just, you know, uh, and I say minor, don't everyone gasp while you're listening to this, minor gunshot wounds to the legs. Yeah. You know, they can still hobble in with help and just put them Where on. Where you know they're going to be okay. Yeah, eating ice cream in two days. Like, thanks a lot, guys. See ya. <laughs> we call that the million dollar wound. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Especially a butt shot. Yeah. 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 Um, we can joke with the audience here, Kyle. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Um, But, uh. So I had seen those and then, again, heard them over the radio. But the first real casualty that I saw, um, he was, uh, you know, if he even made it, he was absolutely going to be a double, if not triple amputee. Mm. And as our corpsman picked him up, and I talk about all of this in my book very thoroughly, and I tie it in with a great lesson. Right. Um, and and this Marine survived. But as the corpsman, and I'll never forget this, but as the corpsman picked him up and tried to drag him to safety, because what they'll do over there is they'll wait, you know, while they're farming in their fields or while they're working their job. You know, they'll hear an IED in the distance. Then they grab their weapons and charge to the sound of that IED because they know that Marines will never leave their fellow Marines. Right. Just like, you know, in the army and a corpsman will never leave his patient Mm. or who he's working on or trying to save. So knowing that you'll be in that area and still, and you can't move or do too much because again, you would leave that casualty and the corpsman helpless. That's how they tried to maximize the casualties. Mm. And so, but, but, uh, you know, with that said, our corpsman was trying to drag him to another side of the wall because we knew that an attack was about to start. And as he picked him up and started dragging him, his leg, boot and all, 
just stayed on the ground and slid right out of the bottom of his camouflage pants. Jeez. And, you know, I was ready to go out a 200-round drum ready. I never left our patrol base with less than 800 rounds. Usually I had 1,000. Mm-hmm. And so I was ready, but in that one split second, and and I'm not insensitive for anyone listening. Uh, you know, I wasn't crazy or losing my mind or anything. But from my experience, and as a 19-year-old experiencing what I had up to that point in my life, and I've never been in combat or seen anyone potentially about to die in front of me, and especially with wounds like that, mm-hmm. I thought, like, what? I mean, it's like just like the movies. Like, mm-hmm. it was so severe yeah, that it's almost like, like only makeup or special effects could could do that. Yeah. You know, his leg just stayed on the ground. Mm. And so I just, it was like a split second moment of not being able to comprehend what I was seeing. But of course that had to go away immediately. Yeah. Because we knew the attack was coming and it did as we waited the almost 50 minutes for his medevac to arrive. Wow. And so, uh, I I say now, you know, in his his what we thought were his last few moments, he said uh, he he was an incredible leader, still is, and one of my great friends, and he's completely crushing it in the world now. And uh, I tell him to take it easy all the time because he makes me look bad, and <laughs> a guy with all his limbs left. But uh, you know, he gave us his final words on leadership, and I tell his story to corporate crowds and and anyone because. Uh, it was just amazing. He gave us his last words of leadership, you know, told us to take care of ourselves, look after ourselves. Um, and with his last few seconds, you know, to to talk to us and to make sure that we're good Man. and staying focused. And then the last thing he said was, you know, look after, you know, my wife and uh, my daughter. His wife was pregnant with their first child. And she was due, you know, in the next couple months while we were still going to be deployed. Jeez. And, uh, you know, now I say that he's completely outnumbered by enemy forces with not one, but two baby daughters. Oh, no. Yeah. So. uh, That's the truth. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, he is. Girl dead. Yeah. But, um, you know, I'm so thankful and just forever grateful that, of course, he made it. I think I think what you said was so powerful, and it kind of leads back to the psychology of the younger generation of um, the warfighter, right? Like what you're talking about with you know his legs staying on the ground there and kind of experiencing that movie level of violence. Isn't it interesting that you translated that back to a movie or like something that you had seen on a screen? Yeah, you know, like the the, the older generation was like, oh, I saw that in the pasture, you know, when you know cow stepped on my buddy or whatever. Or right. Maybe they hadn't even seen that level of violence, but they'd experienced death. Yeah, because of the flu and all the hard things that led up to you know World War Two. But you were equating that with what you'd seen in a video game or what you'd seen in a movie. It's interesting the psychology of a warfighter in this younger generation because we kind of have a bubble around us in a lot of ways nowadays, you know, of our culture. We don't experience a lot of violence. And so a lot of times when we go to war, we're seeing violence for the very first time. And I, I've got to think that's a lot more of a shock to us in the in these younger generations, you know? Yeah, that's, and, a, that's a 
That's a great point. I have never thought about that, but that is so spot on. It's it's just interesting to me because of what you were saying there, you know, where I was thinking about the way you translated that mentally. It's really powerful. It's we it's it's kind of a strange way to think and you know, civilians won't think about that, but you're you're bringing up experiential you know, references from what you'd seen on a screen. Yeah, the only thing that could possibly come close right. to that. Yeah, absolutely. Like, how is, how does his body look like this? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Now, it, when you went through those, that was in the first month or month two? or That was um, November 9th, so 12 days before I was injured. Okay, so yeah, 12 days later. And then, uh, not to kind of stay on this day, but, you know, we finally, thankfully, get Zach on the medevac. We uh, patrol back to our patrol base mm-hmm. in the in the little village there. Fast forward like seven hours later, I'm on Radio Watch. Mm-hmm. And Radio Watch is sitting in a dusty dimly lit for whatever flashlight you have around room and you are just listening to the patrol that goes out at night so we had four squads and every day and the squads changed up who had what duties but every single day we sent out a uh, early morning patrol a daybreak patrol a late morning to early afternoon a late afternoon patrol and then a night patrol jeez not, you know, uh, obviously uh, staying true to the mission, but more specifically showing the locals, hey, we're really giving an effort. We're here for you. Mm-hmm. You know, we're here to push the bad guys out and hopefully give you infrastructure, schools, safety and security and freedom that, that you want, that you've told us you want. So, you know, a lot of it was just showing them, hey, we're here for you. Help us on this mission to to make things better for you. And it's not a bad thing to live simply or live in your mud hut with your farm animals or whatever. But to do that because you're so oppressed and you're so terrified to do anything that, that you might personally want to do. You know, I was there for that mission. Yeah. And, you know, if I wouldn't have made it, I would have been content. And at peace with, you know, I went down trying to just help another human being. But uh, so that's some context as to why we patrolled so much. So a few hours later, we get back from the patrol where where Zach got hit. That night, I'm on radio watch and uh, an IED goes off in the distance, like way in the distance. And our patrol and, you know, sometimes it might be a farm animal that steps on them. Right. Sometimes, unfortunately, it might be a civilian, which the Taliban or enemy doesn't care one way or the other. Yeah. So it's kind of like, man, obviously, I hope that wasn't one of our guys, but it was a ways off. And I knew that they were patrolling a ways off, too. Yeah. And this IED was so massive that I remember while, you know, intently on edge holding the radio waiting for any info to come in i remember seeing like dust rattle and fall from the walls Jeez. because it was just that hard of an explosion wow and uh 
do right there. Um, you know, one of my very good buddies, he was 18, maybe 19 years old. Uh, Lance Corporal Dakota Hughes from Louisiana, uh, you know, took his last step and breath on this earth. And so, um, you know, again, it, I wasn't out getting shot at. I was in the base. I was safe in that moment. And I wasn't seeing the casualty, but to hear over the radio that they're looking for him, that he was, he was, he was hit so hard that they had their flashlights out trying to find if anything was left of him. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, that's just one day and, and an example of, you know, a, a day in Marja and, you know, being a Marine over there. But, um, yeah, yeah thanks for, for letting me share that. But, yeah, even though I was listening on the radio, it ties back in, you know, with actually being there and seeing Zach is no matter how present you are, no matter how much you're there, there's still, you know, a small aspect of any situation like that. And, you know, even here as a civilian, you know, doing, uh, uh, you know, uh, mass shooting or a bad car crash, you know, fill in the blank as situations that are that intense, that crazy, that just unnatural. Um, there's just, um, no matter how many times you've gone through it, uh, no matter how, again, present you are, it's just, there's just a, a small percentage of it that you'll never be able, at least me, to fully grasp or comprehend. I agree, man. I'm, uh, we were on the road. I was uh, doing a project on a guy named Brady Cervantes, um, and uh, we, he he's a professional bull rider after he got out of the Marines uh, for a while. And we were on the way to Phoenix from Tucson, and we were driving up through Eloy, and uh, I, I saw him pulling over, and like he it looked like he was getting in an argument with the guy behind him. Um, and he, he wasn't actually getting in an argument. He was yelling, at, the guy was yelling at him to grab an aid bag if he had it. And I see them sprint to the other side of the highway, just like stopped off. And I, my brain wasn't really wrapping around what was going on. <clears throat> but I got out of my vehicle when I realized, and I looked across, and I realized an 18-wheeler jackknifed across the median. And it hit a car, hit a car oncoming. So when we got to the car, uh, I think Brady and I did, uh, you know, we were switching back and forth. Um, it was him and me and another guy, CPR for about 30 minutes um, on the guy. We cut off his seatbelt and all that. Uh, but, you know, it was pretty evident that he was not going to make it from the get-go. Uh, but as in the situation, we handled it very well. Uh, you know, obviously Brady had been to combat, I've been to combat and, but the initial shock at the moment is what we were really helping people through, like giving them assignments yeah, to do things, you know, hold, hold this, hold this blanket up in front. So people from the highway don't see what's going on, you know, little things like that. Yeah. yeah. You can grab this, you can grab that. Cause people are just crying, screaming and, you know, and just really getting lost in the moment. But I had a moment after I thought, I was kind of proud of myself about how I handled it, and I was proud of Brady and all that. But at, but after I get done, um, I went to the to the door to the passenger door, 
and I, I was just looking for an ID or anything we could find. And we had found his ID, and I saw his wedding ring on his hand. And then, and, and for some reason, man, that just smacked me, like seeing that ring and thinking about his wife getting a call later on that day. Yeah. And not knowing, you know? And then I grabbed a receipt, and it had read like 30 minutes before at a gas station nearby. He was just buying Gatorade and, you know, peanuts and pistachios. And I was thinking, that's been me so many times on these trips. Yeah. And to think that we just did our absolute best in the moment, I was proud, but I was so sad mm-hmm. just thinking about what's going to happen with this family. You know? Yeah. So that, that what I'm saying is that shock of the moment, it kind of slapped me right then. It wasn't in the moment particular. In the moment, I responded pretty well. But I, I had that moment of pause after. Yeah. I, I think that moment comes at different times. Obviously, you have to get quickly through it when it initially happens. Yeah. Um, but afterwards, sometimes guys get hit very hard after, you know. And, and I, it was just shocking to me anyways. And, and, that, and so I know what you're talking about with the trauma thing of, you know, you, you never know what that's going to be. And, and to your point, it can happen to anybody. At any time. Yeah. You know, that receipt at the gas station. Yeah. Everything's good. Just going on about my day or life. And, you know, it just shows you uh, how, I mean, one of the, the many lessons of your story, uh, just how finite yeah, life is. Fragile. Fragile. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you learned lessons on the battlefield, but I think it's... It can be, I, I you know, to, to people out there hearing about the lessons on the battlefield, I think it can be almost tougher at times back here because you live in such a bubble. We we, we live in, you know, in, in padded hallways, you know, in a lot of ways. Going about our day with our coffee at 7 a.m. and our comfortable chair and then you know we might slide into the desk at work and then leave at five or six or whatever not to say that people don't have hard lives because those exist even in first world country but a lot of our problems are first world problems but then when you come face to face with death or something happens very quickly you realize that is the great equalizer right we all die yes and in those moments of fragility it's not to be feared really I think it can make you more grateful. Absolutely. I'm sure you learned a lot about that. Absolutely. Even in those moments. Yeah, those moments. And then after four months of kind of those moments um, nonstop, you know, those led to the ultimate moment of my deployment Yeah. on the roof that day, November 21st, 2010. And, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, where do you start? Uh, the only thing I remember from that day was, uh, and I guess I'll give a little context, about a day, day and a half before, my squad got tasked with pushing south, taking over a new compound in another village, and uh, taking it over and holding that ground. Mm-hmm. Now, we did that because we were four months into the deployment. We were well over halfway. And in a couple of months, that new unit 
of Marines was going to come in and relieve us and we were going to go home. But just like with anything in life, I believe, and the Marine Corps believes, you should leave it better than you found it. And that is, uh, you know, expanding your area of operation. And if you keep doing that every deployment, you know, we expand a little bit. The next unit comes in. They expand. And and in doing this, you're not only pushing the bad guys out, but you're creating stability in that region to hopefully, again, lead to schools being built or, um, you know, logistics to open up enough to where all the kids can have shoes on their feet or clean drinking wells dug for them. And so that was, um, you know, the reasoning behind us pushing down, taking over another compound. And, you know, you got to think all over Marja was Marines from my unit. So if we all do that, that's a pretty big footprint that you're hopefully making stable. And so um, we were going south, and there was three villages to the south of us, and we nicknamed them Shady shadier and shadiest because <laughs> dude every foot you went further south the fighting intensified really? like it oh yeah it was i mean if you were patrolling south it was take extra ammo extra water and get ready and so uh we got tasked with this mission and essentially it was hey go take over this compound in this village take as much food water ammo and empty sandbags that we once we got there we would fill to block bullets and put up a lookout position um and go and try to survive and for five days or so before we can get you relief Mm. and so uh safe to say we drew the short straw (laughs) and uh (laughs) we packed our bags and we took off and halfway down we started getting shot at jeez Packs are so heavy, they were like slow-moving turtles out in this field. All you could do is take a knee and hope that they were not accurate because there wasn't really any running with the packs that we had on. So that's what started, how this mission started off. Um, fast forward about a day later, and it was the morning of the day that I got hit, November 21st. And besides, after I got hit, the only thing I remember from the entire day was just like every day almost, we started getting attacked and getting shot at, small arms fire, AK-47s, at about 7.30 that morning. And I remember hearing it. I remember rolling over and unzipping my sleeping bag and thinking somewhat along the lines of, well, here we go again, another day in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. I don't remember anything until later that afternoon Myself and a fellow, you know, a best friend, a fellow Marine, were on top of a roof together. Mm-hmm. And uh, for anyone listening that's trying to get a visual image, go to Google Earth or Google Maps, put in Marja, and get the aerial view and kind of the landscape feel for what I'm talking about. But these compounds, as you know, you know, they're essentially just a big square courtyard with no roof. Right. And the families, the farm animals, you know, the crops you've picked and are drying out or drugs, whatever it is, are in this compound. It's kind of like a one-room-fits-all type thing. And they usually have uh, 
a small room built into a corner of these compounds that they can sleep in at night. If it's hot during the summer, you know, the walls will bake all day and has somewhat of kind of reverberating heat throughout the night. If it's really cold, obviously you want to be inside out of the cold. So they'll build these little sleeping rooms. Well, myself and Nick, we were on top of this roof, and there was one other roof uh, in this compound, and it was uh, on another corner built on the inside, and it was a small, probably a four-foot-by-four-foot room that they just used to dry out the poppy or marijuana, the cash crops that was fueling this Taliban insurgency. And that's why... Um, for anyone not familiar, that's why the fighting was so intense and there was so many fighters in the area of Marja because it was like, you know, the Midwest here. It was the most fertile land. It was where they grew all the poppy that they converted to heroin that they then sold to buy arms and all of these things. And so they, they condense into that area to protect those assets. Right. So the night before I was hit, I was on top of this little roof, uh, or day before I was hit, I was on top of this little roof, and uh, I was, you know, my buddies, we, we do four-hour shifts at a time, and Marines are always on post, always on guard. And it was my turn, and so... Uh, it was getting close to sundown, but my buddies, they would fill these sandbags and they would throw them up to me. And so I was on watch and looking out, but also when they threw up a sandbag, I would just get it and stack the wall a little higher and continuing to build that, you know, killing two birds, birds with one stone during my four hour shift. Well, snipers and hand grenades, ironically, were actually a very rare occurrence through this deployment. It was mostly just straight up hey, we're going to attack you, and we're about to get in a crazy firefight. Um, but I started getting shot at with a sniper while I was on post. And again, another surreal kind of moment, uh, I knew from the first couple shots that it was a single-bowl action rifle. So I had a second or two before he could put another one in the chamber uh, but, and, and before he shot. And so... Uh, you know, my I was laying down. Thankfully, when he started, by the time he started shooting at me, I had built a wall semicircle, roughly three sandbags high. So if I laid down flat on my stomach, I was just covered enough. Mm. So while you know when he would shoot, uh, or while he was shooting, my buddies would throw sandbags up on my stomach. I would reach over to the edge, grab it, pull it to me. He would shoot, and then I would hurry up and stack one and, and kind of still laid back Jeez. down. But he would shoot, and I could feel the thud and impact of the round against the sandbags that I was laying up against. Oh, my gosh. So after a little while of that, and it, it was about to be dark, and they don't mess with you at night over there because they know that we have night vision, night vision capability, and they do not. Um. You know, my staff sergeant, who had been to Ramadi three times when it was bad, you know, it was his 10th or 11th combat deployment. Jeez. Um, he came over, and, of course, he's like, hey, so Carpenter, like, how's the sun tanning going up there? And, you know, I'm getting <laughs> shot at. I'm like, oh, pretty By good, staff sergeant. <laughs> yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, he's like, hey, come on, get off the roof, and we'll keep building this post. Um, 
after the sun goes down at night. I'm like, okay. So I wait for him to shoot again. I grab my saw and I just run and like straight up off the roof. And um, no exaggeration, 30, 40 seconds, maybe at the very most a minute later, a rocket comes in, completely vaporizes every sandbag and the entire post that I was on. It damaged the roof so bad. Later that night, there was a Marine back on post, and uh, we just hear a string of, which is not a, a you know unheard of, but a string of um, very cleverly put together profanity. <laughs> and we're like, dude, what's going on? And the roof had collapsed. So he was just like in the building of this room, just like <laughs> surrounded by dust and debris and rubble. And uh, he was all good. But I tell all that to say, we were down one of our two vantage points. So the, so the next day, myself and Nick, we were on top of this roof. And again, I don't remember anything up until the point of right before we got hit. And I probably remember because I was, I w- we were talking and we were going through just trying to get, you know, a quicker reaction time if something was going to happen. We were going through different scenarios. Hey, if they come down this road... This is how we'll react. You do this, I do this. If they, you know, come from this compound, this is what we'll do. And just trying to somewhat prepare to react better or more efficiently. And uh, I remember joking with them, and we were at the very end of our four-hour shift. And Mm. I remember joking with them, like, hey, what happens when a grenade comes up here? Because we had got attacked with grenades the whole day before, after we had taken over this compound. And he, uh, he was like, you know, my ass is off this roof. And I said, dude, I'm right behind you. That's the last thing I remember. I don't remember seeing the grenade, hearing the grenade, thinking about it. All I remember is that's two seconds of conversation. And then I remember I felt like I got hit really hard in the face. And uh, my ears were ringing so loud, just as they are this very moment. My vision immediately was like a TV with no connection, just white and gray static. Mm-hmm. And immediately the confusion and disorientation set in. And I I first tried to kind of push myself up and shake it off. And then I realized I couldn't feel either one of my arms from the shoulders down. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of led to some panic, but I was still more just trying to figure out what had happened. Yeah. And I was thinking, okay, last thing I remember, I was in Afghanistan, but I I think I remember being on a roof. What could have injured me this bad on a roof? Because again, as you know, like most of the time you step on an IED. Yeah. So I thought, well, maybe I got off the roof, stepped on an IED, and just in the state I'm in, the last thing I can remember is being up there. Um, But then... That was interrupted by what I thought was my buddies messing with me and pouring warm water all over me. I'm like, dude, so messed up, guys. Come on. I'm in this banged up state, and you're just like messing with me and pouring water all over me? Again, keep in mind, I was very disoriented and confused. Mm -hmm. Um, But that final piece allowed the other ones to fall into place. And I realized that it wasn't warm water, that it was blood, and I was profusely bleeding out. And I felt it on every inch of my body. Wow. 
And so at that moment, knowing how I felt, knowing how quickly I was getting tired, and not just tired, like, I can't describe it. It was just, like, every fiber of my being, deep down inside, just, it was just a tiredness, like, was slowly consuming me. Mm. And so with that final thing and just seeing the casualties we had up until that that point, I knew that my time, unfortunately, was um, coming to a close. And so I thought about my family, uh, and specifically my mom, and how devastated she was going to be when she got the news that I was not going to survive to make it home. And then with my last second, I said a quick prayer for forgiveness for anything I had done wrong in my life. And then I faded from consciousness and the world for what I thought was the last time on this earth. And uh, to my very happy <laughs> surprise, I woke up five weeks later at uh, Walt. At the time, it was Bethesda National Naval Medical Center. Okay. But now it's Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Okay. And wow. my first sight was... I opened the one eye I had left and my first sight at this new life and bonus round that I'm living now was red Christmas stockings that my mom had hung on my hospital room wall uh, decorating for the holidays. Wow. And that was four inches of snow on my hospital room window and I had faded on a hot dusty rooftop on the other side of the world and it was, you know, 85, 90 degrees. Mm. Wow, and then more confusion <laughs> ensued. <laughs> all my all that was my, just the beginning of the confusion. Yeah, all my doctors are wearing camouflage, like the greatest surgeons in the world. I'm asking, like, hey, do you know what you're doing? Like, <laughs> are you sure you know how to do this? They're just like offended. Like, I'm the I'm the number three orthopedic hand surgeon in the world. But you know, again, being a a um, a junior marine. But also only having been in a year and a half, mm -hmm. not really even knowing, besides a Navy corpsman, about military medicine yeah. and the shots I had to get before we deploy. <laughs> like You were picturing MASH. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or just what, I'll, what anyone always knows, and that is that doctors and medical professionals are in white lab coat type, type deal. So... And if the doctors are going to be at the level of the equipment that the Marine Corps gets issued, you're in a lot Dude, of trouble. Just, just, just don't even try to say they it. Might don't as well don't just wake me up. Just. Six foot deep. <laughs> yeah. I'm gone. I'm gone. Yeah. Yeah. No hope here. Yeah. But, uh, oh. Yeah, we're using this machine to fix your arm. It, you know, it was built in 1941. <laughs> Only has a, a little rust on it. It should be good. Like, oh, man, come on. It didn't, yeah. didn't work on the last guys. We're getting off of Iwo Jima. We're going to go ahead and try it. Yeah. 50 50 shot. Yeah. Yeah. At least you might live. Yeah. <laughs> man, that's wild. So, what now, what did they say that you did? And what was actually confirmed to be true? Because obviously, you said you don't remember um, what you actually did. Right. But, yeah. And, so, and how would you after yeah. getting hit by a grenade? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and at first, you know, it bothered me that I couldn't remember, but that that uh, evolved more quickly than not into just being just amazed and just so 
beyond grateful that I even woke up. And once I kind of grasped how just crazy it was that I woke up, um, you know, I, I'm, it's never bothered me since that I can't remember. Uh, but but uh, from eyewitness accounts and statements and testimony um, and a very, very thorough, years-long 252-page investigation done by the Marine Corps and Department of Defense, uh, it was concluded that um, I attempted to cover slash shield the fellow Marine that was with me on that roof uh, from the grenade after it was thrown. Mm. Wow. Man, that's incredible. Uh, I I want those of you uh, who are listening right now to kind of, if even if you got to hit the pause button, to, th- to think about that for a second. Um, Kyle won't. Kyle would never tell you to pause. <laughs> Kyle, uh, Kyle would be humble about it, and uh, but but the action that it takes to step in at that moment, because nobody knows what they would do in that scenario. You didn't know what you would do, but the action to to take that instinct and and and, that, and, and take that moment to shield your friend. I mean, biblically, there's no greater thing. There is no greater love in this that a man laid down his life for his friend. I mean, that is incredible love. You you had known Nick for a while, I'm sure. I'm sure, right? Yeah. Uh, a few months before we deployed, he was uh, even more junior than me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the time we spent training together, and even being the junior Marine, he was never having deployed. First of all, we went on every single patrol together, mm. even when we were just like, oh, we'll help out this squad and fill in and go on a patrol with them if they need bodies. But he was point man every patrol. So that just to lead guys that had gone to Iraq to be trusted, not only to have the courage to be point man, mm-hmm. but to lead guys that have been there and done that and for them to trust and believe in you and and you know, feel like you got it. Uh, that's incredible. I mean, he was just, uh, and still is, but he just uh, was an amazing Marine. He knew his stuff, uh, and he he was always the first to, you know, even when you could tell he didn't want to, you know, he was not, he was motivated to the point of always being willing to, you know, whether it was, go unload boxes of water that were dropped by a helicopter or go on another patrol, even if he had just got back from one. You know, he was there, and, um, and dude, he's awesome. Um, but, yeah, I, I didn't know him too long, but what we had gone through up until that point, mm-hmm. even in a short amount of time, you know, was, you know, years and years, if not a lifetime worth of love and trust. Yeah. Forged in the refining fire as a combat. Yeah. That love uh, grew stronger <laughs> yeah. through the through those refining fires. Yeah, I mean it's really a perfect picture of a perfect of an incredible relationship, my man. Thanks, uh, man. You know, built there. I mean, you talk about you know the there are so many examples of great you know of great marriages and people, and they go through. They usually go through a lot. You know, they usually go through a lot in their relationship to get to that other side. Obviously, you're in a different scenario in a, in a friend way and loving your friend, 
but that love can still be just as strong in a Absolutely. different way. Yeah. And I, I think that's just an incredible example of that love. Uh, and, and I'm sure in that moment when you said, oh, I would take off after you, jump off the roof, <laughs> you you meant that. I meant that yeah. wholeheartedly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I don't recommend jumping on any grenades, but I, I was hoping maybe we, we had had a couple more seconds to get off the roof. Yeah, yeah. Um, the fuse was a little short. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, before we go on, mm-hmm. I just want to make a point that you said you never know like how you would react or what you would do. Yeah. And um, I talk about that a lot. Um, you know, whether I'm speaking to a, 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 you know, a group of middle school kids, five of them, or a room full of C- Fortune 500 company CEOs. Because you're right, you don't know what you would do or how you would react. And I didn't either. Hmm. Even if you'd ask me, again, I'm off the roof right behind you. Yeah. If you had asked me one second before. But that is the beauty of the human spirit. Hmm. You never know how, when, or to what capacity you're going to step up in the smallest or biggest way, in mm-hmm. combat or in life. And to just be there and and be willing, even if it's five minutes of your time after you've clocked out at work, to give the time, effort, and love to someone else. You never know how big that is going to be or how heroic and even life-saving that's going to be to someone. Mm. And so, yeah, you never know. Um, but that is uh, just why people are so amazing and why, you know, you hear about the elementary school teachers that laid on top of their students during tornadoes Jeez, yeah. or the the Marines that not even on active duty on their off weekend you know, rush into waters and save someone drowning and drown themselves or, you know, just, uh, the firefighters on nine 11, that last photos you saw of them were charging up stairs, knowing that, mm. you know, there's a, you know, a, a greater chance than not that something's going to go wrong enough to where I'm not going to survive this and people do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And so I was just there, um, about a week and a half ago at ground zero and I went across to ladder 10. Um, and I, I'd never been to ground zero. This is my first time I'm wearing a cross <laughs> made of that. And I think in some ways this is the foundation of the project, right? Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, and, and why we ended up there. And I think about that all the time. I wear that on my neck. That's a source that when that happened that day, that became my reason for why I do what I do and the passion of that, you know, that became your reason. Um, but I, but I, I was, I was standing there and I just got the greatest chills. Just ladder 10. It's so close. Yeah. I was looking at that fire station, just thinking about the morning. Those guys having no idea, sitting down, eating, hanging out, joking around. And then to go into that building and just know, yeah, I'm probably not coming down. Um, and there are so many stories and subplots from that day. But, but again, more heroic action, like you said. 
uh, shielding kids in a classroom when there's a shooting. And you hear stories like that. You're right about the human spirit. It's absolutely incredible. What you did that day was incredible. I mean, it's mind-blowing. Um, there are examples. And, man, we need to look at those examples more often. I think so many times we get bogged down in negativity. Yeah. We get stuck in the bad, in the, in the horrors, and the terrifying stories about what happened. And the news really propagates that, of course. And the media does a good job at that. <clears throat> Or bad job, whichever way you look at yeah. it. But it, for entertainment, almost entertainment factors, uh, which is kind of sick when you think about it. But I, I think that you know what you take from that moment, and you know, is and and those things that make us better as humans are are the heroics, the the, the actions taken that day that highlight individuals and in stepping up and taking action. And you did that day. Those school teachers do that day. That the those firefighters did that day, and, and so just absolutely incredible example. But you're sitting in after that. You're sitting in the in the hospital. In a way, you're back on those boot prints, right? Back to Paris Island. You're transitioning into another part of your life. This time, probably pretty frightening, as well. But frightening in a different way, right? Yeah, um, well, you know, when I woke up in the hospital, that really was the beginning of this journey that I'm on now, mm. of, in a way, uh, just the next level of self-discovery, and I hate to say it, but I guess I got what I asked for, getting, <laughs> getting pushed to the limit uh, to make myself better. Sometimes even I don't know when to laugh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with my boys. I've been doing this for six years, and sometimes I'm like, I get an even more incredible story, and I'm like, I'm not sure if I should yeah. laugh. The, uh, the followers might laugh. hate me. <laughs> Are you laughing at Kyle Carpenter? <laughs> You're a terrible person. Yeah, man, I'm sensitive. Don't laugh at me. <laughs> Uh, but no, that really started that moment that I opened my eye really started, uh, this journey that I've been on now. And they might, I guess they're very similar, but I wouldn't say it was frightening. I would say that it was very daunting when, whether you look at physically where I was at, um, not only was I out for five weeks, but when I wake up, everything in my body had atrophied. I couldn't really move. My arms were tied up to poles over my bed to, and propped up. Um, they weren't just like tying me to my bed against my will, but <laughs> they were, they were just really, you know, as propped up as could possibly be because they had already had to cut my arms open just because the swelling got so bad, it was starting to cut my circulation off. So my arms were tied up. I couldn't move without getting extremely nauseous because I had been still for so long. You know, I had a trach for almost two months. Jeez. So to breathe through a little straw in my neck, you know, by the time I get enough air in to not panic, I'm trying to breathe it out and get the next breath in. So I'm always fighting that. I'm always fighting my machines and the pain and the beeping and, you know, my, my uh, 
just every inch of me except really from my left leg, the knee down, my an- my left ankle was the only thing not injured. So that's very daunting just to wake up and be in that state. Mm-hmm. But then it's an entirely different level when your doctors come in and they say, hey, you know, we're going to need two to three years with you to, you know, put Humpty Dumpty back together again and do everything that we need to or can to get you back to your new 100%. Jeez. And it's not like, hey, you know, we need these two years of surgeries at any point in your life. Like, no, you cannot leave the hospital until they've done everything that they feel they can and they sign off multiple doctors sign a piece of paper that says okay you can start your med board so you're really at the mercy of them just doing all the surgeries that they need to or they feel they need to so to be told while your buddies are still in the marines thankfully not injured Mm -hmm. while they're still deployed while they're still getting the next three years together doing Marine stuff. Or I look at the other side of my life and all my friends I was in high school with, they're in college, you know, they're going on their spring break trips, they're spending time with family, not a care in the world. Not not all of them, of course, like you said. So many people have difficult lives and are struggling every single day. But uh, it's just, it's a tough pill to swallow when... You know, in my case, to be kind of stuck and really struggling physically, mentally, and emotionally. And you have to just come to terms with the world keeps spinning. Mm. No matter what you're going through, no matter what happened to you, no matter how hurt you are, the world keeps spinning. And so, you know, I had to realize that. And then, uh, thankfully, you know, I got told, hey, we need you here for two or three years but I think and I'm I'm grateful that my brain I think just immediately compartmentalized and went into short-term vision instead Mm -hmm. of being like oh my gosh I have 40 surgeries and three years left it just became and probably because I could barely breathe or even survive so I was just trying to make it to the next minute for months if not the whole first year But I just got funneled into focusing on and being forced to only focus on the smallest of goals. So, you know, I, I, uh, I had to, you know, I wanted to get my arms untied. Then I wanted to sit up in the bed and then I wanted to stand up and walk. And so, uh, all of these things. And then, yeah, I guess on the other side of things, you know, I had a surgery And in the beginning, it was, you know, multiple operations a day, and then it went to every other day, then it went to every couple weeks. And then for the bulk year and a half of my real recovery, once I somewhat got back on my feet, it was about a surgery once a month. But, you know, I could only really focus on that next day or hour of therapy or that next surgery. And so I'm thankful that it was so overwhelming that ironically, I didn't get overwhelmed. It was just always, Hey, I'm going to try to squeeze with three pounds of pressure today instead of two like yesterday. 
and just capitalizing on those little moments and um and and uh, but it was it was uh it was never that bad though because um to think that my final moments uh you know, to truly believe and feel and experience what I thought were my final moments on this earth to wake up after that you know, I truly feel like every single day is a bonus round. And to wake up from feeling that and to realize I was still alive, it was it was hard even to this day. It's like hard to ever really be down or, or be out of the fight or not find the silver linings and things or not you know, even welcome the struggle of everyday life because every struggle, every victory, like, dude, even us sitting here, every single day I do something. Mm -hmm. And even if it's a workout, sitting here talking to you, or, you know, less than 48 hours ago, I was floating around a coral reef in the middle of the Caribbean Ocean snorkeling, Whatever it is, I cannot go a day without thinking, picking something out of my day and thinking. Even if I'm not consciously wanting to do this, I cannot go a day without doing something and thinking, man, I would have never experienced that or I would have never met that person mm. if those final moments really would have been my final moments. I would have never gone skydiving or attempted, and, and thankfully, I don't know how, but crossed the finish line and accomplished a marathon. Like I wouldn't have, I would have, I would have, um, and, uh, you know, I was okay with it in those final moments. I didn't want, you know, of course I wanted more time, but I, I wasn't paying for more time. I, it was like, and probably because of the blood loss and you can't really even process what's going on anyway. Um, you know, but I, I didn't like regret what had happened or what led to those moments. And again, I was, I believed in what we were there for and helping our fellow human beings. But after waking up and feeling those final moments, now it's just like, man, I mean, you know, it, like life is beautiful and I'm just so thankful to be here. And uh, so even the hardest times in the hospital and the times that, you know, it was, 345 and and I was going into pre-op to get stuck again and for them to stick me three or four times to find veins because they were either damaged or they had been used so much from so many surgeries that you know they it was difficult for them and so you know like I would um you know not often but sometimes after like say a, a stretch of 10 surgeries you know, at 4 a.m. sitting in a cold, dark hospital room with my mom, like crying, like, man, I, I knew I could get through it, but it was just like, it was just, it was hard. But even I say that, talk about that moment specifically, because even in the lowest, worst, hardest, most darkest of times, I was still, you know, like it wasn't a bad day because I was still here at least. Mm. Wow. Man, you got me about to tear up over here. Um, 
I'm glad you're with us. I I'm thankful for you, brother. I am. Uh, and, and getting to meet you, um, you know, a few years ago, beginning to really experiencing y- your heart in the last couple weeks and then getting to spend this time here. I just, I'm grateful you're here cause we need you here. We Thanks, do. man. That means a lot. Um, at, you're sitting in the hospital there. I think this is something that I wanted to hit on a little earlier, uh, but you had mentioned, sitting there and thinking about time going by and, you know, you're missing the spring breaks and all the hangouts and you're sitting there and your doctors tell you very minimum, you're going to be here for 730 days. Yeah. And very difficult. My buddies were still deployed. Yeah. Still Marines. And I was still a Marine, but, but yeah, that was a big aspect as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe a thousand days that you'll be there. The sacrifice doesn't end. And I, I think you hit on something very important there. When you signed your name on that dotted line, you didn't just say that in that moment you'd sacrifice. You'd say if you were you know, fortunate enough to live, to have another breath, that you would continue sacrificing. And, and you did. Three years past that, or two, two, two to three years, and continuously now, right? Because those wounds don't go away. Um. So you hit on something very important. When we sign our name on those dotted lines, you don't know what's going to happen. But that sacrifice continued to present itself. And and your family made a sacrifice. They had no idea what they were going to face. Your mother had no idea. Your father had no idea. What was it like sitting in that hospital room with your mom? And how do you explain that? Uh... Yeah, I mean, words, uh, you know, sometimes words just can't quite convey what something was like. And, you know, this is one of those moments. Um, but when they got the the call, they had just got back from Sunday school, and uh, it was actually left on our answering machine mm. to contact the Marine Corps uh, regarding your son Oh, geez. Yeah. The answering machine. Yeah. And so, and then for the next, they talked to someone. Probably shouldn't change that procedure. Yeah, we agree. <laughs> Especially my parents. We agree. But, yeah. um, but you know, they didn't go into specifics, right. but it was still obviously something's up. And so they they called and they got a very rough idea of what happened and they listed off my injuries, which some were accurate, some weren't. But either way... My my parents still have it. It's a long back of a a long business uh, envelope, and uh, it's just the whole thing is one big list. And um, you know, my dad was strong, and he knew that he had to immediately get the logistics together and make all the moves to get the family in the car and take off towards Walter Reed. Mm-hmm. But when they got there the roles reversed you know my mom had been out of her mind upset uh, clear I mean I can't even imagine and I'm not even a parent yeah but just to hear someone you love you know after getting this news then you don't hear from anyone for almost seven days until seven days later when I got rolled through the doors of Walter Reed wow seven days 
of a journey where I died three times, where I was resuscitated three times, where I got 10 plus surgeries in hospitals throughout Afghanistan and Germany before I even got to the state. This is before you're at Walter Reed. Correct. Jeez. So I went through three combat trauma hospitals through Afghanistan and then Germany where they stabilize you as much as possible before they, they put you on that eight, roughly eight hour flight back to the States. Um, but yeah, so they went through all that before I even got there. Um, but then, you know, when they got there and they saw me, um, which I was telling you this earlier as we were walking around, like my doctors asked my mom to bring pictures of me or anything that they could use to look at me and try to reconstruct my face back to what I somewhat looked like before. My gosh. So when they got there, when they saw me, the roles reversed. You know, my dad had an extremely difficult time, and my mom went into, you know, mama bear mode. Mm -hmm. Like, from that point on, over the next three years, like, it was, you know, just beyond incredible. And, of course, you know, my dad came around. It was just very difficult at first. Um, but, um, you know, everyone serves, mm -hmm. and everyone goes through it. And so often I think people get so focused on the veteran or the service member that they don't think about living by a telephone for whether you're in four years or 20 years. You know, every single day you think when you come back from running errands, going to the grocery store, you're going to come back and there's a government car in your driveway. Mm. Thinking that every phone call, you don't even want to look at your phone or answer machine or whatever it is. You don't want to check your emails because you're going to learn of your loved one getting killed or seriously injured. And so, you know, really think about that, people. Like, you know, it's, it, is a, it is a family effort. And so, um, of course, it was very difficult for my parents. But also, my brothers, they were late late uh mid to late middle school i believe uh at the very most you know ninth grade which i don't even think they were that old but um you know my brothers who spent their christmas that year in a hospital room mm -hmm. my brothers who for the next two years did not really have a normal parent structure because one of them was always at Walter Reed living with me, taking me to appointments, taking me to surgeries and therapy. And so just very difficult for everyone all, all around. But I also knew that they were feeding off me. Mm -hmm. And so I thankfully was able to stay for the first few months, which were the most critical I knew, you know, for their well-being and mental state. For those first few months and through my whole time in the in the inpatient care of the hospital, I stayed very strong. And, uh, and uh, you know, I wanted to do good and to be good for them because I already couldn't handle what they were having to go through. You know, I'll take it all day long. But to see my parents, you know... Um, just truly suffering and wanting to help me, but knowing there is absolutely nothing they could do. 
You know, they can't make the surgeries go quicker. They can't help me breathe better. And so to be that helpless, it was very difficult. But I stayed strong uh, until months later. I, I had a, a break, breaking moment. But um, it was extremely difficult. But just like I was so in shock and thankful and grateful that I woke up and I was still here, you know, no matter what happened to me, yeah, you know, they'll say, you know, once you got to us and you were alive, we knew that we could, you know, love you back to health. Mm. And we knew that with the doctor's help and Walter Reed, anytime I get a microphone, I try to express not only my gratitude, but how incredible it is. Forget that I asked my doctors for like a year if they knew what they were doing. <laughs> um, but just, I think they've forgiven you by now, <laughs> but, uh, but that, that family and that care just to they don't you know they raise their right hand too so they understand yeah but they're wearing the same cloth as you so they not only care and and care about you and love you as a person and as a patient under their medical care Mm -hmm. but they also love and respect you as a fellow service member yeah and so it really is like a family and then my actual family was there to be with them and help them and uh it was just such an amazing beyond amazing and beautiful place to recover um and so um so very difficult but but yeah, very difficult, but you know, we made it. And l- let me ask you, you hit on something just a minute ago. You said you had a breaking point. Yeah. Would you talk about that for me? What yeah. that was like? Um so like I said, I tried to stay strong. I had done good. Um and so almost two months after I woke up and I was at Walter Reed. Uh, I still don't know how, you know, this timeline was, uh, so expressed, but, you know, a month and a half after getting hit, I was shakily, but I was walking around. I was up on my feet and I was healing and getting better every single day. Once you get to a certain point and you don't need that super intense inpatient every single second someone is watching you then you go to it's kind of like a middle ground between outpatient and inpatient and uh, I spent that next month and a half I left Walter Reed and I went to what's called a polytrauma unit recovery unit at the VA in Richmond Virginia and uh dude it was it was a drastic change i mean i didn't i wasn't hooked up on one machine i didn't have any intravenous pain meds which i didn't really care about i just didn't want to like suffer i wanted to even if i needed a little medicine at the time like i just wanted to keep getting better and i didn't want the pain to hinder that recovery so it was a little scary like even if i knew i needed it I couldn't really do anything but, like, take a pill and wait 30 minutes to an hour to hopefully feel better. Because when you're, you know, when you're taking medicine orally, it's not intravenous. Like, it's delayed. So unless you take it well ahead of the pain coming back, there's going to be a break in that relief. Mm -hmm. 
And so that was scary getting taken off all my machines and kind of being like on my own. And people don't understand how a lot of people don't understand how bad that pain is. Yeah. You were experiencing next level, probably almost, you know, heart attack level pain. This is oh, yeah. terrible pain. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Not a bad, oh, migraine, I can't see very well. This is like pain where yeah, you like need that. A month before, they, I went into a 13-hour surgery to repair the 30 fractures in my arm. So it was a pain that Jeez. after they hammered rods through all my bones and put my bones back together, I mean, this pain, like, pulsated mm. from the deep inner core of my bones. Jeez. And um, a pain that even if you're, like, the toughest person, like, I felt like at that time, now I'm a big baby, not really. <laughs> but I felt at that time I could really, like, take mostly anything. Yeah. But even as tough as you are, it's a pain that, that will make you tear up even if you can take it. Yeah. You know, it just like wrecks you. And uh, and it's also, when you have pain like that, it's not just, oh, I had this pain, I'm going to deal with it. Like, you know, just like a bad migraine that goes on for hours or days. Like it's a pain that, that physically and emotionally wears you down yeah. if it's not under control. And so it was just a serious, like we talked about in the beginning, like transition. And I was going to spend the next month and a half or so there, get more on my feet, do more therapy. You know, at this time, I was even doing speech therapy. At this time, uh, it was going to be a year or two before I could even get any of my oral reconstruction to hopefully get teeth because the grenade blew all of my teeth out on bottom except for three. And so couldn't eat right, couldn't talk right. So I was going to speech therapy. So kind of this middle ground of recovery. Well, I get well enough, and uh, as crazy as this sounds, and this is roughly three months after getting hit, um, I should have, after my time at the polytrauma unit, gone back up to Walter Reed. Mm -hmm. But because of the influx of patients and wounded warriors, they did not only not have any beds, but over the next months after I traveled there to go to, to do surgeries, and I'll, I'll get to why I was traveling there. But when I traveled there, like, they had patients in beds out in the hallways. Because the rooms could only have two wounded warriors slash patients at a time. So any that didn't have that bad of injuries were out in the hallway. And so there was just nowhere for me to stay or live. And so... You know, Walter Reed, they not only, my care team and my Marine Corps liaison team, they knew me, they knew my family, they knew that I probably wasn't going to just take off and go UA. And they also knew that I had many years of recovery left. So it's not like I really could have gone anywhere because I wasn't even, you know, I didn't even have strength enough to walk to the mailbox and back. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and this is, this is, wild I didn't put this in my book but I got told with like a day or two notice that I was getting discharged Jeez. and we had made this agreement with the Marine Corps and Walter Reed that I could go home to my small town South Carolina to recover as long as I however and not not uh 
I don't want to, I might be speaking out of turn. I hope this isn't wrong. But, uh, you know, we weren't, we were getting paid for mileage, but it's not like I could just get on a plane and get a free plane ticket and every two weeks fly up to Walter Reed. Right. So as long as my mom, a saint, drove me every two weeks to Walter Reed to do a surgery and I did therapy every day at a local hospital clinic, I could go home to recover for the next. So this was very end of February and they were building a new, big, incredible wounded warrior barracks, like living home on the base of Walter Reed at this time. Okay. But it wasn't opening until September of 2011. Mm. So I had from March until September that I was granted permission to go home with the understanding that I would do therapy every day. And again, every two or three weeks drive up to Walter Reed and do a surgery. Um, and so we go to check out or like get, um, discharged and, you know, they're pretty much like, well, you know, this is what, this is the type of therapy he needs. This is the wound care. Cause I mean, my wound care still took up to three hours every day that Jeez. my parents had to do. Wow. But we got no list or recommendations of any care. Like, dude, it was like, you're getting discharged. You still have two years of recovery. Like mom, figure it out. Wow. That, dude, that's exactly what it was like. And I was so out of it at the time. You know, now, now I realize how crazy that is. It's nuts. Yeah. Mm. So I get discharged. I go home. And I had an amazing therapist. Uh, her name's Julie Durnford right there in Lexington, South Carolina. And my mom exhaustively, for days if not weeks, called every care provider within a 100-mile radius of Lexington. And every single one, like, sorry, ma'am, we just can't do wound care or handle, you know, injuries like that. You know, here's another recommendation. And she called until she was in tears every day, all day, because no one could help me with the level of wound care I needed. So she finally found the Augusta Burn Center, which is an incredible place. And they're like, yes, ma'am, like, you know, we can take him. And so my mom was driving me an hour and a half to the burn center two to three times a week, every two weeks driving me to D.C., Jeez. and every day taking me to therapy. And I slept like we always joke, like, yep, you remember when I helped you on all those road trips? And it was like I would fall asleep before we left the driveway. I would wake up when we pulled into D.C. after she had sat in D.C. traffic north of Virginia for two or three hours. Jeez. And so, you know, I say all that to say... What an amazing woman. Yeah. Oh. Uh, forever beyond grateful. Um, but I say all that to say this is why I, I was at home when I had this breakdown moment. This has been the Veterans Project Podcast with our founder, Tim Kay. Check us out at www.thevetsproject.com, on Instagram at The Veterans Project, Facebook, The Veterans Project, and Twitter at project underscore veteran. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, our legacies are the mission.